This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State, and I'm running the show today. I am joined by the A-Team. That's right, my co-hosts, whose names also end in A, Brenda and Jessica. Brenda is also a historian at Hofstra University in New York, and Jessica is a freelance sports reporter and writer in Austin, Texas. I'm not sure why I thought you needed that trivia fact, but if you're ever in a trivia that asks you what three co-hosts have burned it all down, names end with A, now you know. Anyways, on today's show, we'll talk about the NFL collective bargaining agreement, and we'll also discuss how the coronavirus is impacting the world of sports. Plus, Shireen brings us a very interesting and special interview with Rachel Rapino on the effects of cannabis um, and CBD products on athletes and recovery. But before we jump into that, however, I did want to start with a quick women's soccer roundup. So the beginning of March is like (laughs) so much fun soccer times. So the Algrave Cup is wrapping up this coming week. That's held in Portugal and it consists of a tournament between Germany, Sweden, Norway, Italy, Denmark, Belgium, New Zealand, and Portugal. Um, Germany and Italy are currently headed to the finals. And it's important to note, though, that a lot of the players from the professional Italian squads, um, especially those in the North, did not attend this tournament because of coronavirus concerns. We also have the Cyprus Cup going on. Um, It's also concluding this week. That's Croatia, Czech Republic, Finland, Mexico, and Slovakia. Thailand completely withdrew from this tournament from a coronavirus. So we can already see, I know we're going to talk about that later in the show, but we can already see some of this impact. And then for the first time ever, you had the Tourneo de France, which was France, Netherlands, Brazil, and Canada. There's two matches to go this upcoming Tuesday when this episode drops, um, but France won after defeating Brazil 1-0. And then, of course, we have the She Believes Cup, which just kicked off this past week. So we have a few days left to go in it. This is a new lineup this year with England, U.S., Japan, and Spain. And, of course, this is the first kind of real challenge, the first chance that we really get to see new coach Flatko and Donosky helming the U.S. women's national team. And they had a big test right off the bat facing England. They're number one in the world, obviously, England number six. Brenda, Jess, did you guys watch this game? What, is, what were your takeaways? Yeah. Okay. Yours look good. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I I didn't watch the entire game, but I did watch like the beginning of the first and the beginning of the second half. I mean, I was kind of surprised by some of the choices. I mean, I guess like the even possession I was surprised by. It felt to me like 
the U.S. kind of sat back at different points and, and you could say, well, maybe that's like efficient or, and maybe it is, right? Because they obviously won. It was 2-0. But I felt like the first half, especially, I was frustrated by the lack of possession on the part of the U.S. if you're a U.S. fan. It felt like they were just giving it away quite a bit. And Kristen Press was amazing. That was a beautiful little goal there. I love how she doesn't really celebrate either. It's just like, mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> she just jogs effortlessly back. <laughs> Her face was pretty great. When she like when she turned around once it got in the net, it was pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. She was I I it was nice and it was a very nice goal. Carly Lloyd is Carly Lloyd, right? I have a newfound respect after her deposition. <laughs> so yeah it was a good game though i have to say it is exciting i mean obviously we know we're leading up to maybe the olympics to see what the roster will look like and to see the kind of playing style that a new head coach brings to the team it was fun to see more of press there's a lot of new faces i think that we're all going to be falling in love with quite soon so um i think it's exciting so there's a few more games i i just think the she believes cup is so exciting this year you know you have in terms of if we care at all about fifa rankings which you know we generally don't but on paper you have the number one six tenth and thirteenth ranked team so it's i'm excited i'm hoping that we get some really good matches with the remainder of the tournament All right, so we start today in earnest with the NFL and their <laughs> the messiness that is their CBA voting. So if you haven't been up to date with this or you've been ignoring it, good decision. But also, let me just walk you through some of the kind of status where it's at now. This is very divisive. This is the collective bargaining agreement that the NFL is trying to push through. It was sent to the players in the league for vote, but there's no consistency whatsoever. The 32-team player reps voted for two passed along the CBA for larger voting by a really slim margin, 14 to 17 votes, one person abstained. But the NFLPA executive committee voted 7-4 against the contract earlier that day. Now, NFL ownership have already approved it last week. So even the players are divided on this. It's very clear that the ownership is is pushing it through. And just a reminder of what's at stake, for some inexplicable reason, the NFL CPA is 10 years. So this is negotiating. This is a negotiation that's putting into place the collective bargaining agreement that will rule the league until 2031. That's such a long time. And so there's many issues that are contested in the CBA, but one of the biggest ones that we've been hearing about comes down to um, the length of the season. Jessica, what are you seeing about the discussion about the season length? Yeah, I think this is really interesting. So the one thing I want to mention is that the owners just seem, the owners of these teams, let's be clear, the owners of these teams, they seem to really, really want this to happen. That We're a year out, right? As Amira just said, like, the, the current CBA ends in a year and they're already pushing this. And anytime the owners of the teams want anything, I feel suspicious of that because <laughs> I, I don't trust any of their motives ever. So what they want is 
to have a 17 game schedule in the regular season up from 16 preseason will go from four games to three uh, and then they want to expand the playoffs six playoff teams in each conference will go up to seven so there'll be 14 in total with the second seed losing its first round by and this is a really huge point of contention because one the health and safety of the players right like one more game can be a really devastating thing. Playing a full out NFL game is just a, on a whole other level from basically anything else, right? So even cutting down the preseason game, a lot of the top players aren't playing in those games. They don't play them as hard, all those sort of things. I, as a fan, well, I don't know, am I a fan anymore? But as someone who would be watching, I also just sort of wonder, like, how good could that possibly be? One of the things they've done is they're proposing to make the roster bigger so there are more players so that if you are hurting, you know, we see a lot of teams by the end of the season, they just have a lot of hurt players uh, so they can put more people in. I don't know. I think it will just be a lot of bad football at the end of the season, but why would the NFL owners care, right? Because then they get the revenue from the TV deal. That's the big thing, right? That they want to lock the CBA in now so that when they go to the negotiating table for their next TV deal, they can say, well, look, we got you 17 games for the next decade. And then also, of course, ticket sales. I I did want to mention that Jeremy Fowler from ESPN, just this weekend, there was this quote from reporting he had done, quote, a number of NFL owners hope the proposed collective bargaining agreement doesn't pass with the players because they believe they can negotiate a better deal, that means for the owners, with eyes on an 18-game season in the future. That is just wild. And as Amira said, if this goes through, this will be 10 years that this is locked in. So... I mean, I don't know. That just I, makes me really, really question all of this. Right. You know, anytime we get into the CBA negotiations, particularly with the NFL, we're confronted again with what's at stake for the owners and the way they work behind the scenes to really coalesce and push through their interests. But then it just returns us to this thing that we take for granted so much is that we're so comfortable just calling them owners. Brenda? Yeah. I mean, I don't know in any other, it's a really particular workplace, right? So it's really interesting because so many people think, well, anyone would give everything to be where these people are in terms of the athletes. So very few people think of them as workers. And it really was Michael, I think it's Michael Bennett's book. Yes, it is. Where he says, you know, in what other job would I have to call my boss an owner? And what are the politics of that given the racial breakdown of the owners versus the athletes? And I think it's so like the whole discourse around the negotiation, the labor negotiation is different when it has to do with sports, especially professional sports. And it's fascinating to watch the ways in which their demands are totally discounted in all these like small you know, microaggression types of ways. So I'm just sort of fascinated by it. It's a big topic for me, sort of workers as, you know, or athletes as workers. And so I've been fascinated to watch any CBA negotiations. I had a question and wondered if you all knew. So do you have a sense of why the vote went down that way? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that I've seen some talk about how there's a split 
how this current CBA has a bit of a split between those who are absolute stars and those who are kind of worker bees, journeymen on rosters. And I think that there's places in which you can see those kind of tiers of playing make it really hard to negotiate, make it really hard to kind of come together as players because yes, there's players as a kind of supported class, but the experiences within that vary considerably. Um, And just to point out the kind of thing that I've been paying attention to or watching with great interest in these negotiations has been what they do with healthcare. Now, many players have been pushing for lifetime healthcare to be included, which always was kind of like a pipe dream. But the issue of healthcare and what you get as a retired player is a huge, huge issue. I've seen this um, personally with, you know, my my best friend's husband and we're looking at the clock like, oh my goodness, you're still feeling the ailments of playing and your healthcare is about to run out. And But one of the things that this CBA proposes is an expansion of healthcare coverage, but also the creations of new networks of hospitals in all of the cities in which there are NFL franchises. And these hospitals would provide ongoing care, um, x-rays, rehabilitation. Um, They're basically setting up as like an extension of like the team trainers and doctors that people get access to in the league. But here's where we get one of these little kind of fissures where we can see how this might have players landing on different sides of this. The, The general healthcare coverage after retirement is still capped at like five years with your benefits. What that means is if you hit that veterans minimum and you you count as a veteran, which is four years in the league, if you play four years in the league and you get these benefits, that's not bad. You're getting more benefits than the time you played. But if you're somebody who's played in the league for 10, 15 years, many of those players are making arguments that their healthcare needs, their, the brunt that their body's taking over the decade or more necessitates a longer period of retirement coverage. And so this is one area where you can see even in healthcare negotiations that players who have been stars or workhorses or running backs or have longevity in the league might want a little bit something more from a retirement package versus, you know, players, the average player who churns out in about five to seven years. And so I think that's one of the things that you see is that it's really hard to negotiate with the NFL versus like we've seen the WNBA. A lot of the players there, you know, are on the same page. You have a few stars going overseas and and you have the CBA kind of accounting for that. In the NFL, you have a lot of different kind of tiers in which players exist. So I think that could be one. Jess, do you have a few quotes from players talking about where their decisions lie? Yeah, I was going to add specifically Sam Ocho, who's a linebacker for the for Tampa Bay. He was on one of the ESPN morning shows. I can't remember what they're called anymore. But anyway, he was on one of those. And he said something that I think really informs Brenda's question that uh, he voted yes. He One of his points was that some players want 17 games, that it's more money for them, which again is what Amir is talking about here. Um, but he then said that his real worry is, like, if they don't say yes, like, what are the outcomes for them? And he he laid out three things. This is what he said he imagines happening. There's either a strike, there's a system that gets imposed on you, and he didn't really 
explain that totally. Or there's a lockout. And that for players, like, none of those things are good. So that this is basically as good as they're going to get. So, you know, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me. There are a lot of players talking very publicly. And on the yes side, I just wanted to use some of their words to explain what it is that they're thinking. So we have Ryan Fitzpatrick, Miami Dolphins quarterback. He said, quote, I think the fact that in signing the CBA and voting yes shows solidarity with owners and players. I think that's important. I think it also shows the stability and strength of our league as we go in to negotiate these new sponsorship deals and TV deals. Solidarity and strength and stability are things that are going to be on our side. They're going to help us increase the overall worth of that pie. And that's a win-win for players and owners in that regard. Devon Kennard for the Detroit Lions. He's a linebacker. Uh, He said the deal is not perfect by any means, and there are things that I most certainly wish were different and or better. But when I took a step back, majority of the things we wanted is included in this deal. Every player will get one seventeenth game check. Minimum salaries have made a significant increase. We get 48% with opportunity to reach 48.5%. Once 17 game schedule is implemented, which will lead to all players making much more money, player benefits have improved immensely, including former players. And lastly, work rules around camp schedules specifically are much improved. Overall, this is a deal that's going to lead to NFL players getting paid more than we ever have in the past. And I love that. On the no side, you have people like Corey Peters, Arizona Cardinals defensive tackle. He voted no on the CBA because for a league that has preached player safety to add additional games is hypocritical. Although there are positive aspects to the deal, it does not go far enough to earn my support, especially as it relates to the off-season schedule. And finally, Aaron Rodgers, who needs no introduction around here, but he is the quarterback for Green Bay. He said, quote, 16 games to me was never something to be negotiated. The owners made it clear that the 17th game is about paying for the added benefits and had nothing to do with positive feedback received about any extra risks involved with the added regular season game. I mean, they have to vote by this Thursday, so we will see everyone gets a vote, right? And I think that's really interesting about this. Every single player, whether or not you're famous, you get to be a part of this decision. And if they vote yes, I guess we're in for 10 years. Wow. Next up. Shireen interviews Rachel Rapino about the use of cannabis products for athletes' rehab and recovery. Hello, flamethrowers. It's Shireen here. And today I am so, so happy to have the amazing Rachel Rapino on the show with us. Rachel Rapino won an NCAA national championship with the University of Portland in 2005, played professional soccer in Europe in 2010, but eventually retired to pursue her passion in the health and fitness industry. She leveraged her master's in health and exercise and went on to build Rapino SC, a top soccer performance training company and lifestyle apparel brand with her twin, you might have heard of, Megan Rapino. She trained thousands of players across the U.S. from youth to professional level, and her robust and trusted training brand has made her a very highly sought after trainer in the Portland area. She was the strength and conditioning coach for the University of Portland women's soccer team and applied her expertise in training and competition in an effort to better understand the role recovery has in performance in the human body. She started concepting the company Mendy with other co-founders several years ago and grew to understand the role cannabis has in keeping athletes at the top performance. Rachel, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. 
So can you tell me a little bit about, as mentioned, your role in understanding and having an expertise in the human body and physiology, how that made you think about recovery and how cannabis and cannabinoids play a role in that? Well, so let's just start start about, let's start with performance because any performance coach or anyone working in exercise science will tell you that everything is about how quickly you can recover for the next training session or the next bout of exercise. And that's where all of the, the metrics and the science is going to point to is like, how well are you sleeping? How well, you know, are you combating pain and inflammation and so on and so forth? So, you know, as a trainer, yes, you want to periodize your programs and, and slowly progress your players to reaching peak, peak performance. But I would say, the most important element of any anyone's training program is recovery, right? Because if you're not fully recovered for your next training or your next competition, then your performance is going to suffer. So as a coach, that's what I learned in my six years of training. And what every professional athlete strives for is to just better recover. Um, and it's not just one thing, right? It's a combination of things. It's what you put in your body. It's how well you sleep. It's it's what you're doing. It's really every decision you make outside of training and competition that's going to affect the next performance. So then, you know, I was introduced to cannabis by, honestly, by professional athletes. They were, they doing it for years because we all know that there has been and still is a pretty real opiate crisis in our country, particularly in, in sports. And athletes don't want to use those type of medications. They don't want to use Ambien to sleep. They don't want to be on Celebrex for years and years and years because that stuff's just not great for your liver and for the rest of your body. And, and highly so addictive in some cases. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's definitely withdrawals um, effects from it as well when you try to get off of it. So we all know that athletes have been using cannabis. And what I noticed, though, a few years ago is that there wasn't uh, one trusted brand. And there's just really like a lack of education or miseducation around cannabis. I noticed that athletes, you know, they didn't know what brand they were using. They definitely didn't know what dosage they were using. They didn't know if it was marijuana-derived CBD or hemp-derived CBD. So four years ago, we saw me as in my other two co-founders, we saw like a huge opportunity to win the sports market in the cannabis space. And so that's how Mindy was spawned. So honestly, by me. Yeah, that's really important. I wrote a piece last year about my own journey. And I was telling you this briefly a little bit before about how I am actually have an allergy to a type of narcotic, a type of, sorry, codeine. And so that left me post-surgery of my ACL tear, which was a complete, it was a hamstring graft. It was a complete, complete reconstruction. So it left me with no pain management. And like, I've had four unmedicated births. This was way worse. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Like this, and I have a pretty high pain tolerance. Let's put it that way, but not having the option. Yeah. Like I would have had like to have the option. And that's something I want to talk about with you is the options and this misinformation we find out. I found that the medical community that I'm around, and I say this now in Canada where, you know, cannabis use is legal in some contexts and some spaces. I mean, there's also the criminalization of black and brown people in those spaces, but I'm talking about with a prescription and being helped with by a, a physician and an expert in pain management, you can use cannabis for pain management absolutely in this country. But what I'm trying to say is that 
Why do you think that's fueled, like the reluctance of the medical community, the traditional medical community to offer this as an option? Like it's an, for me, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been years and years and years and years of propaganda, at least in the United States. You know, it's, it, it started with, it was a racial divide and it was a, it was an act by our government to oppress people of color. And, you know, that really, that honestly is what it is. And so they created this whole propaganda that anyone that used marijuana were, you know, bad people in society. And then big pharma has been able to benefit greatly from the oppression of cannabis. And the FDA has allowed a lot of these bigger corporations and companies to do their own clinical research. And, you know, unfortunately, cannabis has been so restricted that although there is a lot of data supporting the positive effects of it, and we know that it's not harmful for you, you know, the medical community and our federal government has not deemed a lot of that data credible because it's not controlled clinical trials. And you have controlled clinical trials unless the FDA approves it. So obviously, there's a lot of hoops that we have to go through. I think it's heading in the right direction. But it's still a very, very, very restricted industry in the United States. Yeah, for sure. Another question I have about for people that might not understand who are outside of America, could you explain a little bit how it works in terms of marijuana and cannabis and cannabinoids have not been decriminalized across the U.S., have they? Or they is it state jurisdiction in terms of allowance? Because from what I understand, Oregon, it's permissible. But what about other places in the U.S.? Like how can people and athletes recovering who want this or people suffering from pain, how can they access these products or, or can they even? So it is state by state in terms of marijuana. Now, hemp, what became federally legal, the hemp farm bill passed in 2018, which legalized hemp. So hemp CBD is federally legal and you can ship across all states, I think, except for two, which is like, you know, if you live in states like Idaho and and South Dakota, I believe the laws are a little bit gray there. So if you're a citizen living in that state, you just have to know where your state stands in regards to hemp CBD. But every other state you can ship freely. So, you know, anyone who is a D2C business can ship to everyone's doorsteps. Though, and then saying that though, on the flip on the flip side is that the FDA has not come out with the rules and regulations around it. So it's still a very restricted industry. And in terms of baking, not every bank is going to accept, you know, someone selling hemp CBD. So although it's federally legal, it's like all these other laws have not <laughs> caught up to it. <laughs> so very restricted. Now on the marijuana side, I believe there are, I want to say 12 states now that are federally legal. So, but you can't cross state borders. So there's 12 states that are federally legal. They have a legal rec program and obviously medical program. And there's like 33 states that have a legal, a legal medical program. And there's only like a handful of states that don't have either program. So again, getting there, but not, you know, not fully can't cross state borders. So you have to have a multi-state operation if you want to be present in every state, which is very costly. Um, And I mean, we're hoping, we're hoping it'll become federal legal within the next year. I think from an athlete's perspective, where they get really frustrated is that if you're living in a state where it's federally legal, why can't they go get some pot to help manage their pain, just like everyone else in that state? And so that's been the argument for the past year, year and a half, is a lot of these professional athletes are like, everyone else in my state is able to get this. Why I can't just because 
my league hasn't lifted the ban. So that's where the tension is in terms of like the athlete's perspective. Yeah, there's one thing I wanted to clarify for some people that aren't may not be familiar. I just wanted to clarify the difference between what's out there, what's offered. For example, like Mindy, as I understand, has three products, gel caps, gummies, and the stick, which are CDB, uh, CBD based, but they do not have THC because THC is the compound that would, you know, is sort of the one that is banned, like that is is more regulated. That's, could you, could you just clarify that? Like in terms of marijuana via V cannabinoid products, just for people that may not be sure. Yeah. So there's, you know, marijuana is like the mother plant and it was bred to have significantly higher levels of THC and THC is the cannabinoid that gets you mentally intoxicated. So that's like the high that most people experience. And then hemp was, is like the sister plant. So it was bred to have significantly less or lower levels of THC. So if it's a true hemp plant, it should only have 0.3% or less of THC. So predominant CBD and CBD is the, it ha, you know, there's, well, there's a, over a hundred different cannabinoids in the entire plant and CBD is just one of them. And, you know, CBD is, is the one that most people talk about and it's very trendy and it's very sexy. And that's the one that most people <laughs> has been done on and you know WADA the World Anti-Doping Agency USADA have lifted their CBD bans the MLB does not have actually they don't have a CBD or THC ban anymore the NWSL oh, so Major League Baseball is with it yeah they just lifted their entire cannabis ban not just CBD which most leagues are probably only going to lift CBD I'd be shocked if leagues are going to lift the entire cannabis ban, although they should because both THC and CBD work better together. But I think you're going to see most leagues just lifting the CBD ban with hopefully minimal traces of THC. And when I say minimal traces, then it, sh- it should be coming from the hemp plant, which again has 0.3% or less of THC. So it will not get high or anything like that. Um, you're still going to be getting all those great cannabinoid properties from it. So in order to get your products, do people need to see a physician, get a prescription, or they can just actually order them online? Or how does Mendy work? So we decided to have a hemp-only line to start because, again, we don't want to be jumping through a bunch of hoops. And hemp is literally legal. So we were able to get a bank account and, you know, a payment processor, and we can ship all of our products directly to people's doorsteps. So all of our products are hemp. And we actually just launched a fourth product, which is our massage oil. So now we have two ingestibles, two topicals, and it's all hemp. And then, and actually our line, so we came out with a pro line. So we've actually stripped all of the THC from it because we know that CBD is the only thing that's legal. So we've pretty much, as best as we can, there's like minimal traces of other uh, cannabinoids in our in our products, but pretty much it's like 99.99999% CBD only because that's what's legal with most of these leagues. And then we'll come out with a full spectrum line, which again is still hemp, but it has 0.3% or less of THC. So again, minimal traces of THC. But for anyone needing to get tested, um, and usually the tests, the markers only can test for THC that you actually can't test for CBD. You need to make sure that the products don't have any THC in it. Right. Where do you see Mendy going, Rachel? Like, where do you want it to go? 
Well, we want to be the world's most trusted sports CBD brand. So that's where we're going. On a day-to-day basis, you know, if we're not improving athletes' lives with just nature's best recovery tools, then we don't feel like we're doing our job. So that's like our day-to-day mission is to improve people's lives in the healthiest way possible using nature's best. Long-term, again, we want to be the world's most trusted sports CBD brand. That's amazing. I'm so excited to hear about this because this is one aspect, I think, of sports medicine and sports recovery that I just, unfortunately, I don't think is spoken of. People are very timid to talk about it because nobody really knows. Where can our listeners find out more about Mendy and where can they find you and all these all this other important information? Well, so you so right now, our Mendy is 100% D2C, so direct-to-consumer. So we only sell online because we really want to control like the brand experience and the educational experience. So you can find us at www.themendyco.com. And then you can find me in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and <laughs> so what I was going to say, though, unfortunately, federally, we are not allowed to ship outside of the United States. So okay. that's the only bummer. Hopefully those laws are going to change. But right now we're only able to ship inside the United States. But yeah, you can find us at themendico.com, both on Instagram and Twitter. And then same with Facebook. Awesome. And then my... Yeah, my personal handle is at rrapino.com. Okay, is it safe to say that you're a Portland Thorns fan? Oof, I can't say that. I can't go on record. <laughs> I would have multiple, multiple bullets against me. My girlfriend <laughs> plays for the North Carolina Courage. Okay. So, yeah, so I definitely can't say that. Um, and then my sister plays for the Seattle Rain. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really stuck in a rock and a hard place up here in Portland. What I will say is that I love Portland and I, you know, I'm a, I want all Portland teams to do well. That's, you're so incredibly diplomatic. I'm Canadian and I refer to Christine Sinclair as our co-prime minister. So I love Portland so much with the exception of the Trailblazers because I'm a Raptors fan, obviously, but Mad respect, love, love Portland so much. And thank you so much for coming on, you know, the show. We didn't get in to talk about your being a connoisseur of, you know, Southeast Asian cuisine, but maybe if I'm ever in Portland, we can go have some. Yes, definitely. Or if when I'm in Toronto, you can show me around. Absolutely. We have incredible, incredible pho here. So that would be uh, hopefully up to your standard. But I'm loving this conversation. And please, we'd love to have you and burn it all down any time. Yes, yes. I thank you so much again for having me on and consider us friends moving forward. So any any questions that you or your or your uh, sorry, audience? <laughs> I'm, I know, listener. In my head, I'm consumers because that's what we always talk about <laughs> our clients our clients <laughs> yes consumers, customers are like no none of those sound right <laughs> but uh, yeah so thank you again for being a burn all down thank you for having me. it was so awesome to talk to you and we will be keeping track of this as we move forward okay great thank you have a wonderful day next up We wanted to chat a little bit about the coronavirus and specifically about the impact it's having on the sports world. Now, what we've seen over the last few weeks is that this global pandemic is affecting all walks of life, from colleges to travel, quarantines. Every day there's new cases coming up, and it's it's certainly a very 
concerning and scary time. We want to continue a conversation that started to happen. Um, We've talked about, I forget who burned it last week, but we've talked about um, the impact, particularly on the Olympics. And we want to take up the threads of that conversation and talk about not only the impact, but some of the you know, other themes that emerge in conversations around this virus and sports. So again, the 2020 Olympics supposed to be happening in Tokyo this summer, kicking off July 24th. That is still up in the air. There's a lot of concern about those games being able to go on, although the IOC seems steadfast in assuring at least their sponsors that it is continuing. And we've seen that sponsorship aspect being a huge issue. South by Southwest, of course, was just canceled in Austin, and that was largely due to sponsors pulling out first. Um, And so the IOC statements, a lot of those statements in Tokyo are kind of geared at calming down sponsors who are integral. We know it's big mega sporting event, big money, integral to the functioning of the games. And so you have the conversation about the Olympics, but also we're seeing it impacting other sporting events right now. So Women's Worlds, um, the premier ice hockey championship that was going to be held in Halifax at the end of March, beginning of April. They announced just this past weekend that that tournament would be canceled. Women's World Hockey Championships are canceled now. This is, again, the premier tournament for women's ice hockey in the world. So we've seen that. We've seen the NBA send out notices to teams preparing them about playing in front of empty arenas that are only have essential staff and no fans. Um, and of course, we're coming up on March Madness. Jessica, what might this concern mean for that tournament? I am so interested in what is going to happen here because this is a huge tournament, right? And it's not just that it, it spans weeks of time. So it's something like uh, for the men's tournament, it's 68 Division One men's basketball teams at arenas in 12 different states. For the women's, it's 64 Division One teams at various campuses because they don't set the first round, first and second rounds until they release the bracket. And then they definitely will be in five different states. You know, on the men's side, Gonzaga is doing wonderfully. They might be able to win the whole thing. And so there are first round and second round games in Spokane, which I know is nowhere near Seattle, but I just sort of wonder because Washington's such a hotbed of here in the U.S. for what's going down with the coronavirus, like, are they going to move that? What's going to happen? Um, but I, I just find this fascinating. So the NCAA, they have a COVID-19 advisory panel, and they put out a statement just on Friday. And it said that one of the things they said is that the panel members believe that we need better to better understand COVID-19, which is just such a non-committal statement. Like, what else do you need to know about it? I mean... I also agree I would like to know more about it, but when making these huge decisions. And then they said the key is for all stakeholders and athletes to practice risk management at all events, which to me just sounds like they're pushing the responsibility off of the NCAA and onto those people. And at the present... The, or at present, the panel's not recommending cancellation of or uh, cancellation or public spacing of athletic and related events. And I just want to say, I have been because I'm here in Austin, and it was a huge discussion about whether or not South by was going to be canceled. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was adamant that 
if South by could be canceled, then March Madness could be canceled. And so when that came down, it was like, well, this will be next. I just don't know. I just don't know because March Madness counts for 80% of the NCAA's annual revenue. CBS has put billions of dollars into this tournament. It is the most profitable postseason TV deal in sports, according to Forbes. And I just can't imagine that kind of money. I guess one of the things I keep thinking about, they're not going to cancel it. I just can't imagine a full-out cancellation of that kind of money tournament. So the idea of them playing the entire tournament in front of no one is a possibility because it's not the tickets, right? It's the TV. That's part of it. It's the TV. But I imagine like the universities and the arenas and stuff probably want the tickets to be sold and they want that money. But what does it mean? I I just keep thinking like, I understand that they're already not playing and, you know, they're doing preseason Japan baseball, men's baseball in front of empty uh, stadiums or they're doing Italian football games in front of empty stadiums. But can the idea of no crowds during March Madness, the, I don't know. I keep thinking about like, what is the importance of the crowd and the fan in what we imagine as sports, especially sort of moneyed sports. I, part of what you feed off of, even when you're watching television is how the crowd is responding emotionally to what's happening on court. And I wonder if people will still watch it the same way if they're, they, if they don't have that. And I honestly don't know. Right. No, totally. Um, Brenda. When it comes to just a, a point on the NCAA and the, the tournament there, I will lose my shit if some schools don't pull out. And I'll tell you why. Faculty have been restricted from university-related travel for 60 days in most universities right now. Okay. <laughs> what? What the? You're not worth, you're not worth billions of dollars, right. Brenda. I mean, but hell no. <laughs> I mean, no. If I can't go to my conference, if my Cuba study abroad trip, which was supposed to leave next Friday, is canceled and those students are so disappointed and so sad and we've been planning for months... If they send student athletes there, I mean, what's a liability and what's a liability? Right. And also who's disposable because, you know, as long as they get their athletic labor to be damned if, you know, the players themselves are at risk. But I do want to go back to this point just just asked about the role of the fans and, and cheering and kind of that part of sporting culture. Now, I was in Baltimore when Freddie Gray was murdered in 2015. And one of the things that happened in the wake of that, there was uprising and unrest all over the cities. And one of the things that happened on a night of unrest was the predominantly white and affluent fans coming out of Camden Yards met up with protesters in the streets and the fans were largely already intoxicated. And there was a series of skirmishes. Now, these immediately were blasted by the media as protesters attacking these fans. Once we started getting more images and videos back, you saw that that was a very simplistic story. There was a lot of fans who were aggressive first. But either way, on April 29th, In 2015, the Orioles then played the Chicago White Sox 
in a crowdless game. It was the first crowdless game ever played by MLB, and they prevented fans from coming into the stadium citing civil unrest, although inexplicably allowed them to gather around the stadium, which seems like not exactly the point. But one of the things that's so interesting about this was they had empty seats, but they still let the media in, and they actually had three times as many press requests as usual because of the national media attention on it. So it was standing room only in the press box and empty seats throughout the rest of the stadium. Now, the players in the game talked about how eerie it was, how weird it was to play in silence in their it became this kind of camaraderie against the players because they were all doing this kind of thing together. Brett Edgar Tan from ESPN asked if there was a baseball game and no one was there to see it, did it really happen? So they talked about it just being eerie. And, you know, at least one player said, you know, they blamed the lost on not having the fans there to hype them up, but also because they understood the reason that the fans weren't there. And that was weighing heavily on their mind. Um, And so I think that that's what your question brought me back to was this this kind of crowdless moment where they sh- even watching it on TV was strange because it it was it was like watching a practice it was there was no you realize how much of that curation of the dog and pony show around the game goes into that experience and it just felt heavy it was empty, but like really heavy at the same time. And so, you know, it will be really interesting to see what comes of that. And certainly, and if nothing else, of course, people are getting a lot of brewers jokes out of the way about empty stadiums and whatnot. And that was true in 2015. They said, you know, the brewers, you know, say, oh, you get used to playing in front of no crowds. And I've already seen memes that say, oh, the brewers leading the way on public health and safety. (laughs) So, you know, I think at the end of the day, (laughs) you know, people (laughs) also will fall back on humor to try to make sense of, of the situation. Now, Brenda, I wanted to ask you, is there historical precedent for considering global disease in sport? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I thought about, and (laughs) it shows you how nerdy that I can be, was 100 years ago, the largest flu epidemic was 1918-1919. And it was estimated at that time. And of course, it has to do with imperialism. A lot of the Spanish flu and that influenza pandemic was spread by U.S. Navy personnel. But it's also a result of World War One. And it was estimated that about 500 million people or one third of the world's population was infected with that virus, like that strain of the flu. And the number of deaths was estimated about 50 million worldwide. And when that happened, that's really interesting. You said no MLB games were canceled by the MLB, but plenty were canceled by like cities and and really it was cities and mayors that end up at the forefront of these things. And I think that we're seeing it now. So there was plenty of sporting events that were closed down. I mean, I heard New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, think of him what you will, but he's offering free testing to everyone in the New York area right now. And the only reason he's declared a state of emergency and so has 
Cuomo is because it allows them to free up emergency money. So they've been very clear about that. They've been very level-headed, but they are also super front lines. And when it happened 100 years ago, it was the mayors that shut everything down. Like Minneapolis, for example, in 1918, shut down all sporting events. And then if you read the petitions, the importance of sport in terms of maintaining normalcy you get it from like all of these letters. Like I read one from the bowling leagues of St. Paul and Minneapolis in 1918 to please, please, um, (laughs) to please, please allow them to bowl again. So um, you really get this sense. And, you know, the football teams in Minneapolis in 1918 played anyway. And it was the local police that the mayor sent to stop them from playing and said, no, no. Like, you can't do this. Like, you're not above this. And then on the other hand, in 1918, a lot of really famous athletes died from it. And so it also just became this sort of extra reminder to people that if, you know, the strongest, the fastest, you know, the most ideal bodies are subject to this, how vulnerable we all are. Right. So, yeah. So I think it's really interesting to look back at that. And it was about... I mean, the whole thing lasted a total of about 12, about 12, 13 months, you know, a little over a year. I mean, it's a long time. They're, they're again, though, like you're looking at World War One, like people are just massively migrating, like the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, like, you know, all of these kinds of changes. I, I, I wouldn't think that we're in the same kind of moment. But it is really poignant, I think, the sort of quest for like that scheduling of sports. Like what's going to happen on Sunday and Monday and Thursday and not just like the sports that we watch, but these are like all these civic associations where it's all the people who want to go out and like pull. (laughs) Right. It was really touching. Jessica. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had not considered, you know, as I mentioned, March Madness happens in a ton of cities and a ton of states. And so maybe what is it going to get canceled? location by location and how will the NCAA manage that? I don't know. That's I hadn't even considered the role of mayors and governors and possibly shutting down the tournament because their job is to take care of the health of their community, whether or not the NCAA cares about it. And I wonder what kind of back room stuff is happening with making sure that these things go forward. That is fascinating to right. think about. And the interplay there because the threat is people coming in, but also that's the revenue. And I mean, mm-hmm. Brandon used to yeah. talk about how a hundred years ago you had, you know, all of these different migratory patterns, but now we have the technology that allows people to move so openly and freely and pour into places and go. I know where, you know, we talked about what universities, you know, universities we've seen responses, um, them asking faculty to move their classes online, University of Washington, Stanford, they've suspended their courses, their in-person meetings. It's very interesting as a side, all of these things that all these accommodations disability activists have been asking for in terms of like virtual conferences that have never been possible are suddenly all possible Mm. um but you (laughs) know i think it's you know penn state just hit spring break and so not only do we have our athletes in tournaments all over the place they've canceled all study abroad and embedded courses but we just let fifty thousand undergraduates leave state college pennsylvania and go all over And then in a week, they'll be pouring back into state college. So it's, you know, I think that this is something to track. 
not only in sports, obviously, but something we will have our eye on. And just to end this, a reminder that fear around this is not an excuse for racism, particularly anti-Asian racism. And if you recall a few episodes ago, I burned the use of a gas mask in trying to attack her competitor, Zhang Welly's on Instagram leading up to their UFC battle. If I'm happy to report that as of last night, uh, Zhang beat her <laughs> in a very, very close <laughs> match, uh, retained her title. And I just thought that that was a point to remember. In the meantime, I hope everyone stays healthy out there. Wash your hands and, and we will see. All right. It's time to burn some things. Brenda. Oh, I want to burn two things that are related. The first is that we still don't know where the Women's World Cup is in 2023. Which is so ridiculous. Okay. And they don't expect to know until June. Yeah. So we have known that the men's is 2026 for eons, right? We knew about France like five years in advance. This is going to be three years at most. And it's not enough. It's simply not enough. And now, it, especially when it's expanded from 24 to 32 teams, or that's what Infantino is claiming is going to happen. So it's bigger than it's ever been, theoretically. The It's down to Brazil, uh, Colombia, Japan, and then Australia and New Zealand have a joint bid. So basically, these have all been sort of finalized, the four submissions. FIFA claims there's unprecedented interest. Gianni Infantino said, quote, France 2019 was certainly a watershed moment for women's football, end of quote, whatever. And (laughs) quote, whatever. And so I, I know it's like every time I quote him, I'm just like half, half laughing and half crying inside. And the Brazilian delegation, I would just like to to say, in some sense, in terms of a mega event, Brazil makes a lot of sense because it has obviously all the stadiums and there shouldn't be tons of new construction. Of course, there will be because graft and corruption. But they presented their bid to FIFA and they brought their team. And that team didn't have a woman. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Can't deal with is. these people. All you can do is like, laugh. All you can do is laugh. At this point, uh, jeez, Louise. E- even when, like the head Aline Pellegrino of the Sao Paulo Women's Football Federation, who oversees the largest body of women's soccer in the world, probably at a regional level, was available <laughs> to go. So. I would like to burn the entire bidding process, but particularly the Brazilian Federation's misogyny and idiocy when it comes to preparing a bid for the Women's World Cup without a single woman representative. Burn. Burn. Hey, hey, All right, I will go next. First and foremost, I just wanted, I don't need to burn it because we've burned it before, but I want to just flag the, we see yet another bill 
this time in Louisiana attacking trans athletes. This one again is called quote unquote, save women's sports act. Literally go back and listen to the multiple times we've burned bills such as this. It's literally the same thing, but I did want to flag that and toss it on the burn pile because it's, it's a terrible trend and it's awful. But this week I actually wanted to do a burn sent to us by flamethrower, Allison Young. Thank you, Allison, for highlighting this. And I just want to, to share with you her burn. She says, this weekend was the Olympic trials for the marathon. This is a huge deal for fans of women's running because a record number of women qualified for the event. For perspective, over 500 women qualified versus 260 men. There was 35 masters women, women over 30, uh, over 40 who qualified. Only four men qualified in that category by a point of comparison. To qualify you to run basically 245, which is about six minutes, 618 per mile, which is ridiculous. This race also included the first openly trans athlete to run in the trials, plus two women who are 25 weeks or more pregnant who qualified pre-pregnancy and still competed in the trials this past week. So there's lots of great stories, well-deserved type. And this was the deepest field in the history of the Olympic Marathon twi- um, Trials with 15 to 20 women who had a legitimate shot of making the team. For example, one woman who ultimately got chosen, who placed as an alternate, made the last two Olympic Marathon teams. So a really, really deep field. And it was shown live on NBC. And this gets us to the burnable part of this. The coverage of the race was abysmal. The men's race finished first, um, right around the time the women were getting close to the last um, 10K of their race, and they took the cameras completely off the women's race for extensive interviews with the men's qualifiers, which was exciting, of course, but they didn't do a split screen. They didn't do a picture-in-picture. They didn't cut back to the women's race. And when they broke away from the women's race, there were still 12 contenders in the lead pack. By the time they finally got around to coming back to the women, they had missed the breakaway completely and the pack had spread out. So no one watching TV coverage got to see the most important part of the women's race. When somebody pushed from the pack, when people fell behind, when the race was decided. Even after that, they continued just to concentrate on the first two people in the front without letting TV spectators know anything about how the race behind them for third, fourth, fifth, etc. was unfolding. Allison said this was infuriating and she knew she was not the only person who thought so. They obviously needed to acknowledge the men who made the Olympic team, but there was no possible way that they could do that without following the women's race at the same time. It's just sigh. So again, just to recap, despite the fact that the women's race was more hyped of the two races, was record-breaking in many ways, had fascinating stories, the coverage was still an afterthought. Burn. Burn. And I would just like to note that Allison wants everybody to know that if you want more news on women's running, check out fast-women.org. That's fast-women.org. All right, Jess, bring us home. Oh, I'm feeling that burn because they they have the men go first and the women separate so they can have coverage. That's wild. Okay, so... Alyssa Rubel is the only girl on her varsity hockey team at Northampton Area High School in East Allen Township in Pennsylvania. During a playoff hockey game a couple weeks ago, some dipshit brought a sign, a piece of poster board, and put it up against the glass. 
It said on it, quote, Alyssa gender reveal, question mark. And it had a blue box with a symbol for the male sex and a pink box with a symbol for the female sex. Ruble said that she actually didn't even see the sign, but she heard the accompanying chant, Ruble, you're a dude. Her family also heard people on the stand saying she had a penis. Ruble scored two goals in the game. She's a junior in high school, plays on a travel team, attends the Philadelphia Hockey Academy, and has hopes of playing D1 women's hockey in college and being on the U.S. Olympic team. She's threatening. The school, Parkland High School, whose fans were taunting her, has said, quote, There is no place for unsportsmanlike conduct or personal harassment in our school or anywhere, and anyone involved will be disciplined according to Parkland policy and procedures. Furthermore, to Alyssa and her family, we are sorry for the pain caused by the sign. Parkland fully supports gender equity, and Parkland is proud to have female players on its own hockey team. I'm sure... This feels like one of those scenarios where what is practiced around equality in sports at that school is probably very different than what they say. The kids have learned this somewhere, right? And so maybe Parkland needs to do some internal reassessing. Okay, so there's a few things here, right? First, just let girls play sports and leave them the fuck alone. Spend your time practicing and then maybe you won't be so damn insecure. Second, this is just some transphobic garbage, right? What if she was a girl with a penis? So what? Third, what is even the point of these taunts? And I was thinking about it. I'm like, so the the problem is she's just super good at hockey. So therefore, she has to be a boy. Like, what's the actual insult here? It mainly sounds like a bunch of people were insulting themselves and their intensely fragile masculinities. And finally, this is yet another reason gender reveal parties should go. Look what they have wrought. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. So on behalf of girls, non-binary, and trans athletes who are actively discouraged from participating in sports with shit like this, and in this case, specifically, on behalf of Alyssa Rubel, burn all of this. Burn. Burn. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. Well, after all that burning, it's time to shout out some badass women of the week. The UC Capitals have gone back to back winning their ninth WNBL championships um, after defeating the Southside Flyers 71 to 68. Last year, Demille Quiles became the first woman to play in the official game and this year became the first woman to hit a safety in the baseball double A league in Puerto Rico. Diamond Johnson, the first woman selected to the men's All-American game at the Iverson Classic Showcase. Christine Brennan is the recipient of the 2020 AP Sports Editor's Red Smith Award, which is given every year to a person who has made the major contributions to sports journalism. At the end of February, the Uruguayan Football Federation announced that it would contract women footballers for the first time ever as professionals. Also, the winner of the T20 final between India and Australia, this is cricket for those who don't know, was Australia. They won by 85 runs in front of 86,000 fans. They broke all sorts of uh, audience records this entire year. Truly thrilling. Also, Singaporean para usher Noor Saeed Alim won gold as compound open women final in Dubai at the Faza Para Archery World ranking tournament in Dubai. Cheers to Carrie Taylor, an assistant coach with the USL San Diego Loyal. It's the first and only woman coaching in the USL. And Lisa Baird was named the new NWSL commissioner. And now, a drum roll, please. Our 
Badass Woman of the Week goes to somebody I already shouted out, but I just had to shout her out again. Um, Zhang Wiley, her title defense, her UFC 248 title defense, and just her general badassery. The, when I told you before that it was tight, this was the 115 pound title. The first time that she was defending her belt, the judges scored this 48-47 in her favor, 48-47 for her competitor, and then again, 48-47 was the other poll. So everybody who was judging this match judged it so close. She very clearly gave Joanna, a massive hematoma across her forehead. Um, a lot of people on Twitter were posting pictures of that. But I really wanted to shout out the fact that Zhang had to flee China in response to coronavirus in early February. She spent most of the last month in transit. She finally was able to relocate to Thailand and then went to Abu Dhabi and then finally came to the United States in advance of her title defense. She said, quote, it was hard with coronavirus in my country. Everybody knows that. But the virus, I hope, is getting much better. I hope everyone stays together and fights together. We can win this. Our country is suffering from the tragedy right now, but we're fighting together and we're winning it. For that statement, for your general badassery, for your title defense, you are our Badass Woman of the Week. All right, ladies, what is good? Bren. So this is a weird one because at first it was bad. As I mentioned earlier, the study... The study abroad trip that I was supposed to host or shepherd starting next week to Cuba was canceled. And it was very sad. It was sad on so many intellectual levels, research levels. We should all basically be running to Cuba. (laughs) But (laughs) at the same time, it's true. Mm -hmm. I don't want to bring a bunch of students that ruin it. So at first, this was really bad. But there really is a silver lining to things getting canceled sometimes. Because I'm staring down the barrel of a spring break with no plans. Mm-mm-mm. And like, I'm like, huh, look at that. <laughs> like, I have literally never had that. So I'm thinking, I don't know, I write books, I meet nephews. I mean, I know it's 10 <laughs> days, but that's like a lot. So maybe I visit Shireen. So these are the types of... um fun things that one gets to do when they see the bright side. And I'm trying really hard to do that. So that's good right now. Yay. Jess, what's good with you? Yeah, well, I'm about to finish recording here. And then I'm going immediately to breakfast with a really good friend of mine who's in town from Minneapolis. So I'm really excited to see her. I took a cake decorating class earlier this week. Which was fun because, you know, I love that stuff. I don't, I'm not good with the sort of flowers on icing. So I learned a bunch about that. But then I also got to take a cake home. So we got to eat cake all week. (laughs) So that was a win. And then I just want to mention, it was in everyone's feed this week, a, a teaser for our February Patreon. I did an interview with a romance novelist named Alexa Martin. And she was so charming and lovely. And it was just really fun for me to bring romance novels into Burn It All Down and to talk about that in this space, uh, because I deeply love sports romance novels. So if you haven't checked that out, go check that out, because that was very, very fun for me. Awesome. It's thrilling. I really echo that. Go, go, go listen. Sign up to be Patreon if, you, if you're not, because it's worth your time. 
So for me, we're recording this on Sunday, March 8th. And March 8th, for the last two years has been very eventful for me. Last year, of course, uh, was our first ever live show. This uh, Ah. is the anniversary of the five of us coming together for the first time in New York. And then the year before that, um, my goddaughter was born and I got to be there for that. And so today is Noelle's second birthday. And right after we wrap this up, I'm jumping in the car and I'm driving to Philadelphia to celebrate with my best friend Thelma and uh, my godkids. And um, then me and Samari, um, we're on spring break here. So um, me and Samari are going to go into the city, um, which is now in a state of emergency, but that's okay. We're going into the city. Just uh, to release funds. Yeah, I'm going to keep saying that. But also like the hotels in Times Square were $70. So yeah. here we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're going um, in. I'm going to check on the Jackie Robinson Museum. Like I told you, it's opening. I'm on the board of that. And then we are going going over to on the advisory board, I should say. And then we are going over to see six on Tuesday night, which is a Broadway musical. It started in London, then it went to Chicago. And now it is on Broadway. Um, it opened this month. And it's about the it's about the six wives of Henry the eighth. So Oh, that's right. Oh, right. oh, it looks amazing. So this is what me and Samari are doing. I'm really looking forward to having some time with her. She's hung over from her play last week. They just finished Bye Bye Birdie. And if you're a drama mama like I am, you know, tech weeks that have rehearsals till 10 at night and then show nights where we didn't get in the house until after 1230, you know, a.m. every night that weekend we're all just exhausted from it. So we're uh, looking for a low key spring break and just the first half of it will be a little bit of a girl's trip. So I'm looking forward to that. And I just want to shout out Noel, happy birthday and everybody on international women's day um, from burn it all down. We see you, we stand with you, keep fighting around the globe. Burn on, not out. <laughs> burn on, not out. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thank you for listening. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate the show, share it. We love when this podcast gets out into the world and reaches even more people. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. For more information about the show, links, transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can email us directly from the site to give us feedback. We always love to hear from you. Also, on the website, you'll get a link to our merchandise shop on Teespring for all your Biad merch gear and, of course, our Patreon. And let me just take a moment to thank our patrons from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much. Sign up now for as little as $2 to support the podcast and get unlocked all of this extra bonus content. For instance, Jessica talked to Alexa Martin. She found a way to bring together romance, novel, sports, and burn it all down for the longer conversation between the two of them. All of that long conversation is on Patreon. Plus, we have our monthly vlogs. I just uploaded a Patreon vlog taking you behind the scenes at my time at the IOC headquarters and museum and research study center in Lausanne, Switzerland. So check those things out now. And of course, before we leave, I want to direct everybody to our Twitter page 
Check out our Facebook page to see our latest video announcement. We look back at International Women's Day last year where we all came together in person for the first time and did our first live show. And we drop a very special announcement about upcoming events. So if you haven't already, run to those pages, check out the video, and we can't wait to hopefully see some of you soon. Until then, flamethrowers, burn on, not out. We'll see you next week.